Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Explored. Every week, this podcast navigates a new topic through interviews with the most disruptive minds in sustainability, turning their experiences working behind the scenes into actionable advice you can use in your life, no matter your background. My name is Anna. I'm an environmentalist, sustainability consultant, and the host of this show. Today, we'll be talking about the integration of Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, into business models and business operations. My guest for this episode is Trista Bridges, co-founder of Read the Air Consultancy, advisor on marketing strategy and sustainability, and the co-author of the recently published book named Leading Sustainably, and we will be discussing a lot about the book today. Trista is currently based in Japan, and I'm very excited she joins us today at Sustainability Explored. Can't wait to start our interview. But before we do, you can use this moment to subscribe to the podcast to always be one step ahead with the sustainability news across countries and industries. If you're ready, let's jump right into it. Hi, Tristan. Nice having you today on Sustainability Explored. How are you today? I'm great, Anna. Thanks so much for having me on. It's really cool that you reached out to talk about your new book and your work in sustainability. But I usually start with a little bit of a background information. I checked your profile, I checked your work experience, life and so on. You have a lot of experience in project management. How did sustainability enter the field? How did you develop your interest and how did you find yourself in life where you are now? Just a bit on my background. So I'm originally from the U.S. And in the U.S., I worked actually when I started working, I graduated from University of Pennsylvania. And when I started working, I worked for General Mills and I sold cereal and I sold yogurts and all these types of things. And it was a great experience for me, I think, to see the consumer product sector and how it functioned and how it worked at that time. At that time, it was a lot of years ago now in the late 90s. Um, but after that, I decided I wanted to get an MBA because I wanted to do something more strategic. I wanted to really transition my career towards um, strategy. So I went to Kellogg in the US and then I left. I moved to London at first. Uh, my partner at the time, now my husband, was very interested in working in Europe. My first time moving and living outside the US. And so when I first started working in Europe, I worked for Monitor Group, which is now owned by Deloitte. And that's really where I think I probably cut my teeth in project management. So I worked with lots of big brands, particularly uh, FMCG or CPG uh, type brands for many years, big beverage companies, chocolate companies, those types of pet food, that kind of thing. And I worked on many, many large marketing oriented projects. And so then after that, I was uh, headhunted to work at Thomson Reuters. And while I was there, I worked around uh, financial services and managed strategy for one of their businesses as well and helped to grow that into a multi-million pound business actually. And so in doing that, project management was really important for that. All throughout this time, I really had always had an interest in, even at that time, even though nobody was really talking about it at that time, topic of sustainability, impact investing. Uh, when I was actually in Kellogg, I took a great class around impact investing. And this was really the early, early days of it with a gentleman named Jed Emerson, who's considered, I think, the godfather of impact investing in some ways. So I always had this interest and it kind of followed me throughout. And then after several years with Thomson Reuters, I actually did something totally different. And in France, I worked 
as a blogger, I was co-founder of a blog called Rude Baguette, and we wrote in English about the French tech scene. And that was great because I learned how to write. I learned how to interview. I learned how to network, which is very important, as you know, for media people. And then after all that, I decided that I wanted to go back to consulting in certain capacity, but I didn't know in what way. And at the same time, I also wanted to, to move to Asia, which is, sounds a bit random, but I wanted to have, my husband and I wanted to have a different experience. Uh, during the period in France, we became French citizens as well. We felt, well, our son, we have a son who's nine now, is going to be raised French and he's probably going to go to French schools. Let's give him a different experience for a few years. And so we moved to Japan. And when I moved out here, I started a consultancy uh, working a lot around marketing and strategy. Again, I still do a lot of work with Europe around that subject, but I really wanted to transition to sustainability. So I launched this business called Read the Air, and we work with companies, helping them to become more sustainable. A lot of our work at the moment, we have lots of tools and frameworks, but our work at the moment focuses a lot around training and development around sustainability. This is a huge, huge area because there's many people within organizations that just don't really know exactly what to do. What does it mean? What is sustainability? And what will it mean for my job? So that's kind of how I came to sustainability and um, where my focus is today. I checked the website of uh, Read the Air Consultancy. It seems to focus a lot on the sustainable development goals. Yes. Here's the question. How do the companies that you're working with sort of find you and First of all, how do they define in themselves the necessity of integrating sustainable practices into their business operations? Or is there some magical force that pushes them, you have to do it this way or you will not exist? Does it have something to do with the lending or banking sector? Or is it just their own understanding? It's interesting because the sustainable development goals, I, I should say that two years, over, a little over two years ago now, when we founded this firm, uh, my co-founder, his name is Donald Eubank, uh, and we work on this firm uh, very much in partnership together. At that time, the sustainable development goals were definitely... I would say were considered by many companies as the gold standard for sustainability, particularly here in Japan. I still think that companies feel that they're very important. And I should say that what they do really well is they give us a common language. So if you, you've worked in the environmental space uh, for a long time, as I understand, yes. and advising companies around that, sustainability for a long time meant the environment. But that's actually not what's going on now. What's happened now is sustainability means these 17 different things, which include things like health and education and infrastructure and circular economy and all of these types of things and resources and all types of things. And so I would say that it's really been good in the sense that it's given us a common language and it's broadened our view quite a bit. In Japan in particular, people very much like the SDGs. And I think it's for that reason. It, it, it's also something that's validated by the UN which is an institution that is seen very differently depending on where you are in the world. And within the Japanese market, the UN still has a lot of respect. And people really like the idea that it's validated by the UN. So here you have this framework that the government tends to like in Japan and businesses in Japan sometimes follow the lead of the government. You have, the, it's also validated as well. So you'll see it, if you open any Japanese annual report, you'll see the SDG everywhere. Now the question is, how much are people actually doing with it? Are they actually integrating it into what they do? And that I would say is largely not the case. 
So we actually did a study, um, I should say also for our book, my book, which is here, uh, which just came out in the end of July. It's called Leading Sustainably, The Path to Sustainable Business and How the SDGs Changed Everything. And what we found is we actually did some research for the book, looking at annual reports to say how many businesses, and this was a global study that we did, are businesses talking about the SDGs, talking about them in context of their strategy, actually putting in place some initiatives to address them, and fully integrating them into their operations and their strategy. And what we found is the discussion around the SDGs, discussion the SDGs in light of one's strategy was quite high. So it was 50 some odd percent, 60 some odd percent. But those who are actually incorporating it in their strategy and operations, how they do business, which we could take it as a proxy for a sustainable business, was around 25%. And there was another study done around this same time. I can't remember exactly who did it, but they found the exact same thing. So what we're finding globally, I'd say in Japan this is the case, but it's in the case of other regions as well. Most businesses are not really incorporating sustainability in what they do every day, day in and day out. How they make decisions, how they prioritize projects, what they decide to do and not to do, that is not generally the case. They usually start off very small, as you probably see in your work. Maybe they have one sustainable product line. Maybe they do a lot of reporting, right? This is another thing as well. We found for years, reporting on climate emissions, report CO2 emissions, reporting on water usage, et cetera, et cetera, talking about their CSR activities, their philanthropic activities. But in terms of how they actually make choices about their business, it's still not commonplace that sustainability is a part of that discussion. So I would say, you know, how do they do it? For us, the first thing is really thinking about how they make decisions as a business. And are they actually including that in their criteria? I remember when I was working at Thomson Reuters, we actually had, it was kind of a template, if you will, at the time, a visual basic template. And if you did any project, you had to you put it through this template. And in that template, there's obviously at that time, this was years ago, there was nothing about sustainability, but in that template, which every business has, is sustainability even mentioned? I have clients, uh, certainly in other parts of the world as well, I won't, there are which industries, but I don't really run across it very much. So trying to interject it more into conversation, interject it into how they make decisions about what products they put on the market. When they talk to consumers, how are they thinking about it? Are they asking consumers questions about sustainability? So I think that there's been a lot of great work around understanding what's going on, understanding the, I'd say in terms of the, what the impact is of that business around things like CO2 emissions and water, a lot of the science around sustainability, but around business practice and how it works, I would say we're definitely not there yet. Right. Well, yes, you're, you're totally right. Sustainability was almost like equal environment, but no, you, you have to include social aspect, you have to include communities, you have to include uh, your employees and workers. And definitely this is a very broad, like a ball of things that have to be integrated here and there. And this is what I see. I see actions, scattered actions outside of a strategy, outside of a global understanding. Where are we going as a company? What, what do we want to achieve with this, let's just say, waste reduction? Sooner or later, someone will ask you about your packaging, about your CO2 emissions. Why even, I want to get to that uh, COVID-19 kind of part of this year. 
why were we doing business travel like crazy crossing yeah. half yeah. of the globe just for one day meeting to sit at the table when zoom and skype are perfectly well for these purposes uh, i read yesterday that Part of the funds that was allocated to climate adaptation and actions towards, cl towards climate mitigation and reduction of CO2 and everything was pushed towards battling with COVID-19. And then the, there is now the news that we will not achieve the sustainable development goals by 2030 as planned. So we only have nine years left. What are your expectations? What do you think is going to happen? Is it manageable even, the timeline? I would say no. There's a few reasons for that, right? I think that it, it was good. It's always good to have goals. And I think there are some organizations and institutions that absolutely will get there. And, and there's many that you probably know who are actually making pretty big steps towards becoming more sustainable organizations. But we have to remember as well that there has to be a general consensus around the world about doing this. And that's the first thing. So if you look at the socio-political situation, for example, around the world, it's pretty much a mess, right? We, we don't have great consensus to move forwards towards this big goal of, of making sure that we hit, that we achieve the goals, right? And, and we understand the different you know, indicators within those goals and we can basically measure our progress and we can get there in terms of, what the goals are for our specific markets and countries and regions. So at a country level, we don't have a great framework. I think that a lot of times in business, we like to think that we can do everything without government, but to be honest, businesses do a lot of things based on government, with government mandates, fines, problems that, that, that they might have as a, from the government as a result of certain activities. So the government really needs to be there to help business to become a better actor, right? And, and I'm talking a lot about business because countries often don't hit these goals without cooperation and engagement of businesses. It's, it's nearly impossible because they have such an impact on all of our lives. So I'd say one, you know, we don't have the political situation I think necessary to hit the goals, unfortunately. Two, we're not, we don't have the right priorities around spending, what resources we do have available, right? So. The reason, part of the reason that COVID is such a mess or was such a problem for so many places was that there wasn't the proper spending around decisions around where we put our money in society. We weren't focusing so much on those things. And because of that, we came up short. Many people died. Many people have suffered and will continue to do so. So I would say we're not really making good decisions. We're not making long-term decisions around where do we put the resources that we have. And then I think the third thing, which people really forget, is that even if the developed countries do everything right, you know, so they, they meet the Paris Accords, we're just a small part of the world. And we have to make sure that people in other parts of the world can have growth and decent life without doing things that are detrimental to the planet and to society. And that's a really hard sell because many of our countries, our developed nations, didn't get wealthy without doing detrimental things to society and the environment. Yeah. So now we're telling these countries, you have to do better. And they're saying, well, how do we do better? And we haven't even really figured out how to do better. And I think in many ways, a lot of these nations are already doing a lot of very sustainable things. 
we haven't really explained to people how do you get wealthy without being detrimental to society. And that is the part that I think is, is a bit broken. And we haven't gotten a good story or a good process or a good way of being around that yet. Right. So I would say I, I would be very surprised if we hit the 2030 goals in the next nine years because it's time is passing very quickly. Whose job do you think it is to educate these people, the people in general, and to get them to implement the blueprints that is sustainable development goals? So we have different stakeholders, right? We have so many different actors and stakeholders in society. I think that I'll start with government. I mean, I think that they definitely have a responsibility to start thinking much more longer term and I think we as voters and as citizens need to be voting for people and making sure our systems work in a way that enables longer term thinking. So there's a lot of reforms around government that need to happen. That's not my area of expertise, but it's pretty clear that if somebody's just concerned about winning the next election, they're not going to think about moving to complete electric, electrical power off from renewable energy sources in 25 years. And how do we come up with a good plan to get there? I think the EU is trying to think about this. You know, the, the stimulus, for example, that's just been passed and people have said that it's not large enough, but it does have a clear green mandate, we'll say green in the sense of sustainability. So I think there is a responsibility of governments. I think there's also a responsibility of people. We often think, think that somebody else is going to fix this problem, but actually it's going to have to be us. We're the ones who are going to have to put, again, vote a certain way we're going to have to put pressure on companies so we there's many organizations and companies that are working to do better and do create sustainable products and services that aren't even now that much more expensive than the alternative we have to be able to do our research and go out and make sure we we support companies and systems and approaches that are better for society and, and that are more sustainable So we have a responsibility, I think, too. And then I think companies, I think companies, you know, they definitely need to change and adjust. I think, though, they need to be thinking about sustainability and more of an innovation mindset. When companies think about innovation, they don't say generally, oh, we're just going to do what the consumer said that we should do. They don't do that. They, they say, how can we gain a competitive advantage in the marketplace? How can we change the category? How can we save the world, which sounds a little grandiose and a bit ridiculous, but that's the types of things that you hear senior people say in companies. If they care about sustainability, then they need to also have a role in helping us care about it too. So one of the companies we interviewed in our book was a company, it's a company called Bolton Food, which is an Italian company. They're the number one canned fish producer in Europe. And they actually feel it's their role. So they, they really focus on the Marine Stewardship Council certification. And they have that for their products. And they said, well, you know, European citizens or European consumers know that overfishing is a problem. So that's something that they are aware of. But they may not understand what this certification means. They may not understand what sustainable fishing actually is. It is our role as a brand, as a company, to help them understand right, to help them kind of understand what, why this matters to our brand, why this matters to the world. So I think companies all the time think about coming up with something that to sell you that you probably don't even need. They can do this if they really want to. And I, I fundamentally believe that. And then the last one I would say are investors. 
investors, we've seen a lot of activism from investors around sustainability in the last few years, particularly on ESG. And it's really taken off and it's really something that, that's followed, that's seen as more of a gold standard. And they're looking at it now, especially after COVID. Apparently, ESG investments did much better. So we really need to also, I think investors also can be, they can encourage better behavior from companies, from governments. I think just in general, right? Because in many ways they hold the purse strings and they can really help to enact change. Yeah, being the driving force. It's interesting how the Asian perspective, right? You're now in the in Japan is different from what I am used to being from Eastern Europe, from Ukraine. When you say government, I'm like, ah, these people, they never do anything. They only care about their yes. four or five years timeline. I strongly believe in the civil society, on the other hand. And I see how people are rising. Okay, I do care what is this thing made of. I do care about my food, about my packaging. And they go and hit the brand. Why is yeah. the, your packaging is not biodegradable? Do you know? And they also educate the companies in terms of... Yes, absolutely. Do you know that we have our own local producer of package made of corn, for example? This is a true story. And the companies are like, oh, we didn't know thanks for telling us so it's the civil society that pushes uh, the companies and the government and the laws and all of that ngos including tell me more about the book leading sustainably i know it's available on amazon it's quite lengthy, more than 200 pages how did you come up with the idea how long did it take to write who did you interview for the book yes so it was quite an undertaking why did we write this book well, a couple years ago, my co-founder and I, we were thinking about this topic of sustainability and how we could contribute to it, how we could transition our careers towards it. And we felt that we needed to really understand what was going on. And as I mentioned before, in Japan, in many ways, Japan maybe was a bit behind some other markets. So we wanted to understand why that was, why we weren't hearing more about sustainability at that time. We were starting to hear more about the SDGs, but not so much about sustainability. I'd say it's very different today than it was when we started writing this book. And so we uh, said we would write a book. And we didn't think that anyone would actually speak to us, which was really <laughs> funny because we said companies may not want to put themselves out there for potential criticism. And, and this is not a critical book. This is really a book written from, let me explain to you what's going on. It's written not so much for people like yourself, although we'd love for you to read it, Anna, but not so much for people who are experts, but for really for people who wanna learn about this subject and see this coming more into their job and wanna know what to do. So the book really starts out with the history. So how do we even get to this point? How did sustainability become even a topic of discussion over time. And so it talks a lot about the UN, it talks about the Millennium Development Goals initially, the Sustainable Development Goals, it talks about John Elkington's triple bottom line, uh, the idea and theory, which completely is the foundation for so much of our work now around the world, everybody's work in this field. Um, it talked about a lot about the science that a lot of sustainability came from. And then it goes into things like understanding, okay, who are some of the pioneers in this space? We do two things. One, we talk about businesses that are sustainable, the Patagonias, the Ben and Jerry's, these types of companies, right? But we also talk about companies that are maybe a bit smaller who have really been sustainable from the start as well. And we have these profiles of them throughout the book. 
uh, and they're from all over the world. So from Japan, from the US, from Israel, everywhere, because we wanted to really put the spotlight on companies that manage to be sustainable and also to be profitable. So we wanted to make sure people were aware of that. And then we go into things like sustainable finance and impact investing, really interesting space. Measurement, that's a huge, huge challenge. And it's actually a big barrier for people because people want to understand, okay, if we take an action, what is going to be the consequence of that action? And not just financially, but also and other parts of you know, in society. What's our impact on society? What's our impact on the environment? So there's all kinds of frameworks that are emerging. So we talk a lot about those frameworks in the book. We also talk about, for example, B Impact, B Labs, you know, the B Corp uh, certification, which is really growing in leaps and bounds as of late. And we're finding much in larger companies that are focusing on those. And our perspective in the book is that certifications, whether they be ECOVADIS or they be the ISO certifications or they be you be impact, et cetera, et cetera, be corp, that these are actually good things. And why are they good things? Because at least they get companies to have more transparency on what they're doing. They hold them to certain standards. It's really important for us to have standards. We have standards in accounting, right? We have standards in marketing. And there's things that we can say and we cannot say. We need to make sure we have good standards in this space too. And then in the book, we go into things like what companies can do. We have some frameworks around how the company, how companies tend to evolve through sustainability and some things they can do around the SDGs to put them into action. And then we have a really interesting part around industries because our perspective is if one company changes, that's great. But if an industry changes, that's much better. And to actually have real change, we need to make sure that there's industry-wide initiatives and industries are starting to change. And that people are really looking at this as a competitive advantage. If I have a more sustainable business, I'm going to win out in some capacity in the long run. And we also talk about some other large companies too that have been interesting, Unilever a little bit. I think we talk a little bit about Danone in the book, which is doing really incredible things. So that's kind of the beginning to end overview of the book. How long did it take to write? Uh, two years. So two. in terms of times it took from, we did the first interview was in July. 2018 and it launched in July 2020 and it was quite interesting because we went back I'd say at the end of 2019 through the spring to recheck everything because in that time things change sounds so we had to go back to everyone <laughs> and ask them not so much to say can we say this or not that wasn't really so much the intention it was in some cases and we had really wonderful people who opened up to us and we interviewed big companies like Coca-Cola, we interviewed HSBC, AXA, for example, Norvo Nordisk, H&M, lots of large companies and also, of course, smaller companies and startups. And we, we, Jeeval Donald, another one, they were fascinating. And it's really great that we had this exposure to these companies. We're so grateful to be able to have had the opportunity to at least dig into these companies a little bit and be able to hear from them what yeah. they're doing. Sounds like a, like a great uh, journey, like an adventure. Uh, about the certification you were mentioning, I recently re recorded an interview with um, your US colleague, by the way, Pierre Servan, about ISO certification. And we touched the topic that there is little trust from the community, from people in general, to the certifications. Well, what can you say about that? You know, there is a, a way to kind of buy this certification, but then what's the point? Ah, How yes. strict are the requirements? 
and how trustworthy B Corp, Ecovadis, or ESO are? Some people that I know at some of these different organizations, and some of them search questions I know better than others. I would say that they all do different things. I think that's the first point. They're not all quite the same. So Ecovadis, for example, really interesting company. The thing that's interesting about them is that they are not a nonprofit. They are a for-profit organization that does certifications that started, I believe, 2008 or 2009. And they focus on supply chain. And I just feel that it's really important for businesses to have this information. I don't know if it's really so useful in terms of saying, yep, we have this certification. It's information that businesses need to understand what's going on, where is their risk, what are some things that they need to change, what are the consequences if they don't change them. You know, I think that we're, we're, the way we're thinking about certifications, I think we're thinking about them more as a marketing tool. But for me, they should really be about organizations getting good information about what they're doing. Now, where the certifications maybe could do better is the, and maybe that's more our work, how do you fix, like you get a bad rating, how do you fix that? What does good look like? And I think the people that I've talked to in that, that sector who work the ratings area or the certification area, sorry, say that that's starting to be a question, right? So if you have a long, very complicated supply chain and you have 200 suppliers, you tell the suppliers, these are the standards you have to adhere to. The suppliers are maybe small company in India or in Sweden or in Mexico. And I think that that's where they really need more guidance. And I think that that's where the certifications need to probably start going in that direction. I'm not saying they need to be the consultant themselves, but they need to be partnering with other companies to kind of help these companies figure out how to move their partners and their suppliers forward. I will say we had a really good one that we profiled our book called the Higg Index, which you may know. It's used a lot in fashion and apparel. And it was developed really interestingly by Patagonia and Walmart, mm-hmm. if you can imagine. And this is what I was talking about before in terms of industry action that's really important, that here's two companies that are completely diametrically opposed, and at least were at the time. I think Walmart's made some good changes in recent years. And they came together to say, we need to get contract manufacturing up to a better standard. And so the Higg Index, which was used pretty actively by one of the companies we profile in the book, uh, Keen Footwear Company, it's a footwear company. Mm -hmm. They actually are working with their contract manufacturers to help them understand how they need to, what changes they might need to make. And Keen's a really interesting company, which is very different than most fashion and apparel companies. Because something, I think something like 50% at least, or maybe 40 to 50% of their production is made in factories that they own. And the rest is outsourced. It may not be that high, but it's in that direction. The rest is outsourced to contract manufacturers. Most apparel companies, it's upwards of 99%. All of their production is made by contract manufacturers, but they actually keep a lot of it in-house. And the ones that are even their, their contract manufacturing partners, they work with them collaboratively to help them understand how to change. So although they may want them to get HIG certified, they're trying to help them understand what that actually means. I would implore people to use it in a better way. B Corporation is another one, which is really interesting because anyone can actually use their tool on the website and they can figure out how well they're doing. And so it's good to do that, I think, just so you can understand what you're doing as a company 
where you're falling short, where you, forget the certification. Maybe it's just useful having that so you can audit your business a little bit. You don't have to necessarily get, I mean, I'd love for you to hire someone like me, but you don't necessarily need to have me as a first step, just go to that site, right? Use the tools that are available online and really analyze your business. Have your analysts look at that. It's a good exercise, I think, to go through. Yeah, and then yeah. once you do that, then you can think about, okay, what do I need to change? And how can I have somebody help me think about how to change this? You know, I, I think it's the best uh, response I've ever heard so far. Use these certification tools for your own self-assessment to identify your gaps, flows, and everything else. Don't focus that much on the paper, on the stamp, on the yes, certificate. Yes. Per se. Another thing you inspired in me, I watched a panel about fashion and apparel, and there was a girl, a sustainability officer at H&M, that was yeah. harshly attacked. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I was thinking, on the contrary, this person calls for so much respect because mm -hmm. she's there in the mouth of the shark in the company that is uh, blamed by everyone and everything and she is trying to do things that are worthy that are sustainably oriented and focused and you know this is the person that is doing trying to do something can you name exactly. some examples from your book from the companies you interviewed for the book of the same kind of position where yeah it might be an oil company but their efforts, their tiny efforts will result in big outcomes for the industry, for their peers, and for the society in general. Yeah. So I would say, I'm going to say H&M quickly because we did interview them for the book. And I think there's another aspect people miss when they think about these companies. One, yes, these companies are not going anywhere and somebody needs to change them, right? So somebody has to step up and make them better. And I think it's great that this young woman is doing that. I would also say that a lot of sustainable innovation that we need in order to make all of these industries more sustainable. So for example, in, in the apparel sector, a lot of it, there's a lot of discussion around fibers and breaking down fibers to the components and reusing them. Just as a, as just a quick example, a lot of, you find a lot of small businesses that are developing technology around that. And many of the large brands are financing them. They have money. Some, somebody has to step up and help to also fund the future. And a lot of that money is gonna to have to come from those large groups. They kind of create the problem. We need to also encourage them and to lean on them to help us solve the problem too. So I would say H&M is definitely interesting because they know they have a problem. They know that they're, they're, the model in itself, the fast fashion model is problematic, but there are a lot of good people in H&M who are trying to absolutely change that dynamic. Another one that I would say is also a European example, Novo Nordisk, which many years ago was one of the first companies, they did a lot of work as I understand with John Elkington too many years ago, but one of the first companies to really think about sustainability and pharmaceuticals, as we know, is a really tough industry in the sense that there's a lot of things that happen in pharmaceuticals that the general public at the moment is not very happy about. But they actually stepped up and they said, we're gonna focus on diabetes care. And we're going to try to have drugs that are accessible for people. Whereas a lot of pharmaceutical companies have focused more on things that are higher value. So things like oncology and et cetera, et cetera. They have really focused on diabetes care, which is really fascinating. And one thing that they did as an initiative was with the refugee challenge that we have certainly at the moment 
they have a whole program program to make sure they get diabetes medication and insulin and such to people who are refugees. Because when you have to leave somewhere quickly, you often don't think to bring things like your medication or you run out. And I think they're a really interesting company because they really have focused on that. We also interviewed Coca-Cola, which think about a company that is more challenging than Coca-Cola from a sustainability perspective. It's hard to think of one. But the thing about them, which I found really interesting was that one, they are really thinking about how do we move our business model away from Coke. The value in Coca-Cola is still generated by regular red label Coca-Cola today. But their CEO is, says we need to become a blended beverage portfolio company. So they're really trying to do that. They're doing acquisitions, they're moving, and this has actually changed over time. They've become more diversified over time, so that's a good thing. They're also trying to reduce the sugar content of their drinks, which some people in the industry doubt whether that's actually as effective as they say it is, but they're thinking about it. So that so that's a bit of a challenge. I would say another, one area though, where they really are trying to make some, some changes, and I've talked to some people in the industry and they always mention Coca-Cola, is plastics. Plastics are a massive problem for anybody who's making a bottled drink in terms of how do you get rid of it? We're finding microplastics in everything. It's destroying you know, biodiversity diversity around the planet. It is a massive problem. But Coca-Cola is trying to think about alternative plastics. They're starting to invest in some of those things. They have good recycling systems in place for dealing with, uh, dealing with plastic and repurposing that bottles. So they are by no means there yet, but they really are trying to do some things. So I think that, you know, these, they're not necessarily companies whose products I often use per se, but I think on the outside looking in, I can see that where there's some actual earnest action and where we talk about greenwashing too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where there might be a little bit of that. But there are great people in these companies that are really trying to, to push for change. And I think they're starting to be heard more than they made it might have been heard before. Right. The book, Leading Sustainably, that you wrote. So finally, it's for the companies. Is the companies for companies or companies talking about their sustainability efforts for their consumers and general public? It's a bit of a mix, right? So I think even a consumer would find it interesting to know what's going on with the brands that they use. Uh, I'd also say that, but it really was us asking them, well, what are you doing? What's working? What's not working? What more do you need to do? So one of the things, we had a lot of findings that we had from talking with people. One of them was that, which you probably know well, if you go into a company and you talk to this sustainability groups or teams, it's a tiny group of people. Yeah. I think people are forgetting this too. So companies have thousands of people, 80,000, 100,000, 150. In Japan, they're even bigger, 250, 300,000 people. And there's maybe 10, 15, 25 sustainability people. There's just no way those 25 people are going to change the organization of 300,000 people. It is impossible. So either we scale up those departments, and a lot of companies are starting to look, we talk with Hilton, for example, and they're trying to do some of that, you know, really get resources. The woman we talked to at that time, she's since moved on to another company now, but get more resources to have more sustainability professionals in the company to really help the different departments change. But also, I'll come back to training, which is kind of where we started a little bit. People need to be training 
their workers around this. Companies spend unbelievable amounts of money training people on things they could go to business school to get, right? Things like marketing or operations or accounting or finance, hours and hours and hours of training. They have got to be start, they have to start training other employees on this topic. You know, not necessarily just the C-level people who go into an offsite and hear from some sustainability big thinker, but also the middle managers, the new people who are coming into the company. And lastly, I would say that a lot of companies also said they're starting to struggle with finding talent because a lot of young people say, we want to work for a company with purpose. And they have choices now. So when the markets are really good, they go to a startup. When the markets are really bad, they say, it's bad, I can't get a job with a big company. And they're angry because maybe they can't get a job with a big So it doesn't really help. It's not like they're clamoring in a bad down market to work at a large company. So a lot of young people are saying, I want to work with a company with purpose, and I will not join any company. And HR managers, I talked to HR managers who said they're really starting to have challenges. They have young people who sit in interviews and say, what are you doing around sustainability? You know, do you care about these things, et cetera, et cetera. I, this one thing that does give me hope is that younger people definitely have a different perspective on this problem. And they don't think that we have to live in a world where companies cannot be profitable and have purpose as well. Right. Yes, I heard about this research by Deloitte, if I'm not mistaken. 70% of millennials want to work with, in a company with purpose and mission. Exactly. But I'm not a millennial. I'm not a boomer, so that's... <laughs> I'm a Gen Z, or Gen X, sorry, Gen X person. And we're always, you know, my generation is very much, we believe in our hearts, but our head sometimes pushes us in a different direction, mm -hmm. right? We're, we're definitely thinking about it, but it, it's hard for us. Whereas... Millennials and Gen Z are like, why should I have to sacrifice? I can just start my own thing. And that's another thing too. It's become much cheaper actually and more feasible for people to start companies, even consumer products companies, even sustainable fashion companies. The cost of production of things has come down a lot too. So people are really venturing into their own things and that's great. And that's also putting a lot of pressure on big companies as well. I am a millennial. I was born in 1991 and I can judge by my myself how I assess the situation, how I approach the things. I simply cannot do things that I don't understand the meaning of. Starting from the childhood, like literally my mom was trying to teach me to read and I was like, what's the point? <laughs> yeah. like, what's the point if I'm not interested in the story? I know how to combine the alphabet together in phrases, in, in words and phrases, but you should read. Why? I don't understand. Like, and I don't do things that I don't understand. Now that I grew up, even for money, I will not do things that don't matter to me, exactly. that don't mean. And I guess there are more and more of us now like yes. that. And people also, they, they make this assumption for whatever reason that people's beliefs and values and political leanings and such change over time. And actually what they're finding, because now more time we have serving, we have more serving now. We have yeah. enough time that's passed, right? It, it was different 50 years ago. They're finding that people actually don't change that much. 
you know? So I don't think we're going to be in a time where all of a sudden millennials are going to be like, Oh, I don't care about this stuff. I don't care about the planet. Oh, that's not going to happen. It's yeah. a different sensibility. And even you probably see Europe is obviously goes through a lot of changes and difficulties at the moment. But if you look at European elections recently in places like Germany or in France, and you see the green party and how well that they're doing and that they're seen as perfectly capable of governing, running cities, for example. I think that's pretty incredible. I remember even 15, 10, 15 years ago where you would get these peaks in the Green Party, but it wasn't, they weren't given mandates to govern things so much. Maybe they were Congress people and such, but, me, but running a city or running a town, people were like, hmm. But now that's starting to change, I think. I think they have a different approach. They have a different mindset. They're maybe coming from different places than they might have come from before. Yeah. So I'm hopeful about that. I think that if there's going to be change, it's going to be because we now have generations of people who are going to come to power in the next 10 to 15 years who think very differently about, about these, these problems. Trista, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for you, sustainability is a science or art? I think for me, it started as a science, but it has to be an art. And I say that because if you look at most disciplines, we say that we always make decisions based on data. Data informs our decisions, but at the end of the day, we take leaps of faith a lot in the business realm. And I think we need to take a leap of faith around this. And I think people need to believe the story. You know, there needs to be narrative. The narrative is what changes people, is what makes people believe. You know, people are constantly talking about the Apple commercial from the 80s when that, when that came out and how transformative that was. People never really bought apples because of information or data or science. They bought apples because of the story of Apple. And I think now, especially with, with millennials and Gen Z, I think they believe much more in the story of sustainability and will passionately tell that story and passionately convince maybe other people to take certain initiatives in their companies or start new businesses and be able to tell a story around that business and how it's going to make an impact for the world. And it's still going to be a viable business. You know, I think we forget this. It doesn't mean we have to sacrifice making some money. We may not necessarily make loads of it like we did before, but maybe that's not necessary, right? We, we, we don't do things anymore like use child labor, at least most parts of the world, right? We hope. Uh, we don't do things, we pollute, but unfortunately, but we don't pollute like maybe we used to pollute in the same way. So companies took responsible decisions around those things in the past. We can take responsible decisions around these things in, too, and have viable businesses as well. Totally, totally. Time changes, the methods should change, and about the, uh, the income, right, the profit that we are grabbing, depleting the resources, well, certainly things have to change. Certainly. Absolutely. And also, I think we, we forget that over time, that will come back and hit companies too. Yeah. So you can't just pollute without cost at the end. Eventually, there usually is a cost. And what we're seeing now is we're seeing more litigation. We're seeing more people who are challenging companies. We're seeing people who are switching the products they buy. Mm -hmm. And they're losing consumers in some places because of this. They're moving to other brands. Look, for example, like uh, at a company called Allbirds, which you might know, the footwear company. No. It's, it's, in the U.S., it's a big hit. I, I don't live in the U.S., and I don't have, but in researching this book, I ran across mm -hmm. them. And, you know, they focus on developing this completely sustainable shoe. And for sure, they're taking share from Nike. 
from, you know, from Adidas, from some of these other companies as well. So I think we're starting to see some changes in terms of how people are buying and what they're choosing to support. And that's a good thing. Yeah, I pretty much love the approach of Patagonia in that regard. They came out and said, if you can not buy from us, please don't. Use your own yes, stuff, exactly. use what you already have in your wardrobe. And exactly. people went crazy. They went like buying from Patagonia more than before. So we got <laughs> some crazy effects. Yeah. Yes, but absolutely. see, this is what is happening. You come straightforwardly with an open heart and say, please think sustainably, act consciously, uh, use what you already have in your wardrobe. And I think there is a, you know, a moment of appreciation of the act uh, of that by the company that the society starts going mad about, oh, maybe, oh, maybe they will disappear or are they closing yeah, their warehouses? So this is my last chance. So unfortunately, absolutely. And with COVID is now, I would say that a lot of the brands are certainly struggling. Smaller brands tend to suffer more than larger ones, but hopefully that will, will get through this period and we'll have better companies. Hopefully after this, um, we'll have to see. I'm hoping that that will be the case, but we'll see. To wrap it up, I usually ask my guests either to recommend a book or a movie or give a piece of advice. I will, rec I will read your book and I will recommend from myself, I will recommend the listeners of our podcast to read the book uh, written by Trista Bridges and Donald Eubank called Leading Sustainably. How about you give us a piece of advice, Trista, to, to change it a little bit? Oh, around sustainability or? Yeah. Okay, so I have two pieces of advice that I would give. So I would think for, I would say that for people who are within companies starting to think about this topic, and maybe they have started to, but they haven't done much with it yet. Every company has a business planning process. And I would really encourage them to think about how do we incorporate questions and thinking around this in our business planning process, because if they don't do that, it will never turn up anywhere <laughs> because every company does this. And this is about priorities for the business, right? Mm -hmm. So there are things that they could question, just simple questions that are asked. We found a lot of companies that do this at the end of the process. So once they've gone through and they've developed the product, then they say, okay, what is the environment? Is this affecting any communities in a negative way, et cetera, et cetera. That's entirely too late. So I encourage people to do that because I think that will make a real difference. And that's just one thing, of course. And then I think on a personal level, I really would encourage people to start supporting smaller brands, start supporting sustainable brands. In Europe, you have many great supermarkets now, your bio stores, we sell them in France, organic stores, sorry. Um, also buying direct, for example, from, from farms and from, from producers, you're finding more younger people going back to that, going back to their roots and farming again. I think we just need to be all be a bit more choiceful about this. And, and being in Japan, I will honestly say that I'm incredibly jealous of my compatriots and people in Europe because there's so much of that. <laughs> Here in Japan, it's an island. So much is imported in terms of food. It's really difficult. It's very expensive. So I think people have the ability to do that. They have the choice. 
please do kind of just be a little bit more thoughtful about what you buy and, and look for opportunities to really support, like you said, small local businesses and people who are doing things sustainably. Thank you so much, Trista. It was very nice having you today with us, learning from you. And I'm very much looking forward to reading your book. And this is what I uh, wish for the listeners too. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anna. I so much appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I hope you loved listening to this episode and learned something new and got inspired to take action. As always, if you have any questions for me or Trista, please don't hesitate to reach out to us on LinkedIn. We are both easily approachable and findable there and will happily answer your questions. If you like the podcast, you know what to do. Subscribe, share on your social media, leave a review on the platform you're listening on. If you review the podcast on our Podchaser page, I will reply to you in person, as I always do. I always suggest some other related episodes. Um, today, I'd like to draw your attention to the to three episodes mainly. First one with Anna Itkin called Sustainable Business Models. The second one is an episode called Conscious Capitalism, Culture and Leadership with Johanna Lyman. And the third one, the episode with the most emphasis on SDGs called The Culture of Impact and Purpose, CSR, How to Give Back Meaningfully with Giovanna Jagger. Finally, reach out to me on LinkedIn, challenge me with your questions. I'm always happy to receive your messages. Suggest guests or topics that you'd like me to cover in the future. I'd also love to mention that now we have a YouTube channel where most of our conversations are recorded in the form of video, so you can virtually meet myself and the guests. We also have a Facebook group and a LinkedIn page. There we can all engage and exchange ideas, so join in if you'd like. So this was Sustainability Explored, episode number 56, season 5, and me, your host, Anna Chashina. Thank you again for listening, for being with us today and always. And until next time, next Thursday. Take care, stay sustainable. Bye-bye.